Are you looking to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? Fortunately, there's an easy solution from the podcast sponsor, Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians. I've made it easy to check out Medici with a link in the show notes, or you can head over to their website, medici.md, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app. Send or receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid, which is always a wonderful thing, for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Ready to go virtual? Visit Medici.md, that's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. And with that, here's the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Weinstein, who is someone that truly needs no introduction as his work in the industry is extremely well-documented and known. Uh, Dr. Weinstein, I know you're a a humble person, and that's something that I really appreciate about your work and the the content that you've given the, the community. Thank you so much for joining me today. Isaiah, it's an honor and a pleasure to uh, to chat with you virtually, and uh, I look forward to seeing what cages we can rattle. Absolutely, and I, I've been really, really excited about having this conversation. So we'll we'll do our best to to see what cages we can rattle. I like that idea and concept. One of the really good pieces of you know literature or posts that I read recently was the, the the one that you put out to today's veterinary business about your daughter Brooke and you've talked about her on previous podcasts and and wrote about it but she's you know starting her path to getting her DVM at Oregon State and you talked about it in the in the article how you didn't want to encourage or discourage her at any point but you wanted to help her understand what's the reality what does real life look like Knowing that, when she came back and you had conversations, what was her deciding factor for pursuing veterinary medicine as a career? You know, Brooke was an independent from the get-go. She was she kind of knew what she wanted to do even when she was little. And the story was that I sold my practice when she was about three. So she really didn't get the intensive, you got to come in with me on the weekend and hang out in a stainless steel cage or a run while I take care of clients and patients. She got a lot of it through osmosis, and she got a lot of it from having pets in the house, and from my wife, who was a zookeeper, and from everything that I was doing within the veterinary profession. And one of the reasons I sold my practice was to be home more and engaging more with my kids and involved with their activities. And so what I really did for Brooke is what my parents did for me which is to support a vision or a dream of what what she wanted to accomplish. Uh, My parents never said become an MD or an accountant. My mom was a biology teacher. Her dad was a classic general practitioner. My dad was a CPA. They didn't direct me in one way or another. They let me identify what I wanted to do, and they supported it. And that's what I did for Brooke. Um, I probably opened some doors for her and got her some opportunities that she may not have received if I wasn't a veterinarian and didn't have a lot of friends who were veterinarians. But I just, I gave her access to what she needed to become successful, but she was the one who ultimately did all the hard work she did the studying, she passed the test, she got the good grades, she sought out the work experiences. And you know, on one hand, she really didn't take advantage of, of, of who I was and who I knew as much as wanting to be independent, and she still does. It's, and she's only reached out to me once or twice for medically-based questions. For the most part, the medical questions I get or about her dog, it's been an interesting ride, but I think the best part of it was the fact that she really did everything on her own, and all I did was say, yes, you can do it. Yes, you can do it. I was her cheerleader, but she was the one who did all the work. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. No, it's perfect, and I think about these things. So we have a, a young son at home, like 
talking not even a year old yet, and you, you try to think about, you know, what's the skill set that he'll develop and, and how do you help, you know, put them in a, a place where they can hopefully have success and excel at whatever career they choose. And I'm sure if you saw whether it was Brooke or one of your other children, you know, this is going to be a, a pathway where you're going to struggle the entire time and the skill set isn't there that you would have that conversation. But knowing that, yeah, this this child, this individual can go out and be extremely successful, you don't want to tell them, you know, don't do this because X, Y, Z. Let them, you know, evaluate the the opportunity that's out there and see if this is something they truly want to do. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was just cool to watch. You know, I, I, I was so happy when she decided that this is the direction that she wanted to go. And, you know, my other daughter, who who is a big animal advocate as well, has a different mindset. And all I did for her is support her in what she wanted to accomplish. And um, I think my role as a parent is really to support them, give them the resources and the tools to be successful. And if they follow you know, just some commonsensical guidelines, they'll be successful. And the kids made really good decisions. And I, I think as a parent, I'm really proud on the decisions that they made and the outcomes that I've seen so far. And, and um, it's really, it's, it's really, uh, it, it makes you feel good as a parent. Absolutely. As I said, it's probably a testament to, you know, good parenting and helping them be able to be independent enough to be successful on their own right, but also be there to be a, you know, that backstop and support structure when they need it, but not being overbearing or, or forcing them to do something that they don't want, because that certainly seems to be uh, something that you hear about. And, and I've had you know, clients or talk to people that have felt like they were forced into a career that that's, they're good at it. They're smart, they're intelligent people, but this isn't what they truly wanted to do. And, and that's, that's a hard thing to, to get up every day and go be, you know, a professional in a certain field, if that's not where your passion lies. And you certainly wouldn't want that in especially any field, but especially veterinary medicine from that standpoint. Absolutely. You've talked about and, and kind of building on, you know, Brooke and, and being in school, you've talked about the pool of candidates for veterinary school is often the best students, but not maybe the best real world veterinarians. Can you explain what you mean by that? And, and maybe some of the, the challenges around, you know, the elephant in the room all the time with student loan debt or some of these other pieces of, of why maybe the best practitioners aren't actually getting into school. The, uh, the concept of <clears throat> the difference between a, a good student and a good clinician is, is sometimes hard to wrap your arms around because you would think somebody who's extremely intelligent um, would be a good diagnostician and a good surgeon and, and a good clinician. But there's a whole bunch of moving parts that go in, into being a good veterinarian that are above and beyond the sciences. And so when you choose primarily for good students, those who can complete the curriculum, those who can learn all of the important information and those who can pass tests, sometimes you sacrifice a balanced student, one who maybe has done a, a whole variety of different things during their life, but it wasn't strictly, it didn't lead to straight A's. It led to some B's in there and some C's in there, and, but they, they got life skills. They got skills that they could use more globally as a person. And, and when we look at what makes a good veterinarian upon graduation, it is a combination of education and communication and common sense. Well, you can teach education or you can provide the coursework, but the, the communication skills, the written communication skills, the interpersonal communication skills, and the public speaking skills aren't always a part of the veterinary curriculum or the prerequisites to get into veterinary school. And the other aspect of being a good veterinarian, and especially if you're looking at being a good veterinarian as a, and a business owner, is being a good leader. So leadership, communication, education, and then common sense. Um, you know, you would think we all have common sense, but it's not really, you don't teach it. It just comes with experience. 
And so I really think that the decision-making for a good veterinarian is a combination of looking at how they did in school and their ability to handle a very hefty curriculum, but also how they did in life and what they did to follow their dream and their passion to become a veterinarian, but also what they did in, in dealing with adversity, in, in dealing with people around them and learning how to communicate, learning how to work in teams, because life isn't about the individual. Life is about working with others, motivating and leading others to a common successful outcome. And so that's why I'm, I'm concerned that sometimes when we focus too much on the academic side of things, you lose some of the soft skills, the EQ versus the IQ that truly make for great veterinarians in the eyes of the pet owners and the farm owners and the horse owners and fish owners and everything else that we take care of. So that's what my, that's what my concerns are regarding um, strictly focusing on the best students versus focusing on those who might contribute to the profession more rapidly. Not to take away from the best students being able to do that as well, but just to look at, to look at it in a different way. One area that I know was kind of touched on and talked a little bit about at the AVMA Economic Summit was also, you know, does the industry with the amount of student debt start becoming an industry where you're not going to get as much diversity as far as who you attract? Because it has to be someone where, you know, they have the financial support, maybe from parents to make sure that it's financially viable for them to go into this career path. Do you have any thoughts or, you know, the concerns in that regard as well, as far as who is the, the veteran of the future and what that looks like? Well, I think we, we have, in the last 30 some odd years, the, um, the veterinary profession has moved from one that was very agrarian based to one that's much more urban suburban based. Uh, when I was in veterinary school, we were about 50% women, 50% men. Now we're at 80% women, 20% men, thereabouts. Way back when, not that 30 some odd years is way back when, but we had a, a good application pool of people who grew up on farms and people who grew up in the country. And now a very large percentage of the population base that's applying to veterinary school are coming from cities and suburbs. I think that we do need to diversify, and I know the veterinary schools are working hard to diversify the application pool, but it also means that we have to have veterinarians in underserved areas, underrepresented areas, providing veterinary care so that children are raised thinking that veterinarians are part of the business world, part of the healthcare world, and as a result, an eight-year-old Hispanic starts to think about becoming a veterinarian because they go with their parents to the veterinarian who's just down the street. You know, we talk about underrepresented parts of, uh, of the United States that don't have veterinarians, and we think about low population base. But there are high population base areas in Los Angeles, in New York, in Miami, in Dallas, in Chicago, that don't have veterinarians either, but are lower income minority areas. And we need to go out to those areas and recruit at the kindergarten level and at the first grade level and at the elementary and, and middle school and junior high level and let them know that veterinary medicine is an option and to do what we can to encourage them and get the scholarships that are necessary to have them go to veterinary school keep this, their debt at a reasonable level, and but more importantly, encourage them to go back to the communities from which they came and be cheerleaders for the veterinary profession by who they are, what they do, and how they influence people like them in those communities. And we need to try to get more influencers into veterinary schools who can go out to communities 
and encourage others like them to become veterinarians. The cost of education can be daunting. We just need to look at different ways to address student debt. And, and it's a two-edged sword because you've got the cost of education as well as the earning capacity. And it's, it's got a lot of moving parts. But I, I think we need to find ways to provide scholarships to underrepresented individuals to become veterinarians. And maybe it comes from the community. Here's, here's a, an off-the-wall thought. What if, what if, this, if the community that, that somebody is coming from gave them a scholarship with the thought that they would come back and be the veterinarian in that community? And, and become a leader in the community from that standpoint. The bottom line is the cost of education, I don't think is the barrier. I think there's some other issues in, in terms of, of just people not in, in, in certain communities, not even knowing who a veterinarian is and what a veterinarian does. Even though they love their pets, they really don't have that relationship that many others have with their local veterinarian. Thank you. Yeah, that's a well thought out um, answer. And it's certainly not something that is easily solved, but I like the creativity and some of the, the thought processes that are out there. And, and yeah, education of just, this is a viable, like fantastic career and you can do this in your community. You don't have to go somewhere different and you can't be outside of, of where home is. You can still go back home and have a very successful business and serve the people that, that you love and care about. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. I think we need to we need to be recruiting. I think the veterinary veterinary profession is not recruiting for itself. We don't have to because there's such an interest in becoming a veterinarian, but we don't necessarily go out to areas and do enough career fairs and career days and talk about opportunities as a veterinarian. And and you know what? Not even just as a veterinarian, but what about as a veterinary licensed veterinary technician? or even working in the field on the business side of things. I think we need to, we need to go out and be cheerleaders for our own profession uh, in areas that are just not as well represented. And I think we need to, to work really hard to increase the diversity within the profession based upon all sorts of variables, including income and race and religion and all sorts of different things. It's, it's a very um, limited scope of population that, that is in the veterinary profession right now. And it's, it's imperative that as the demographics of the United States change, the demographics of the veterinary profession changes to meet those changes demographically that are going on around them. I loved your term glacial change in describing veterinary medicine uh, and, and where it's at at the moment. Do you think, you know, the coronavirus and some of the upheaval and challenges of just this change that's going to happen in the United States and across the world helps force the, the old school mindset to change the ways that, hey, we've always done it this way because dot, dot, dot? Well, I've been trying to get change slowly integrated but it took a virus to do so. I believe that, I, I don't know whether to thank COVID-19 or not, but it definitely has forced change onto practices that probably were reticent to change. I, I just started an article and, and it basically starts with the fact that in the millennia since Noah, the veterinary profession hasn't changed all that much joking that Noah was the first veterinarian. <laughs> and we really haven't. The business model hasn't. We've been a very doctor-centric, linear model, even when we were doing mixed practice. And, and small animal practice is a relatively young profession. Adoption of new things took a while. It took a while to computerize. It took a while, and it's still taking a while, to accept electronic medical record keeping. And now we are starting to see as a result of COVID-19 what I would call a dock-in-the-box type approach to seeing clients where you go to the car, you bring the pet in, the services are provided, you bring the pet out. It's almost like a drive-through at the bank. If you could pass the pet through the window at the bank and pick it up on the other side or ordering at McDonald's, you know, you <laughs> order and the other side you pay and pick up. 
No, that would be an interesting business model. I say, what do you think if we take build veterinary drive through? You know, you could have a larger door for the bigger dogs, but you push the cats through. Hey, if you really want to, get it, what about this uh, vacuum tube system that we used to use to send the, the money to the teller on the other side of the window at the banks? So I'm not sure that the dogs and cats would like that. But now, I just say, here are some of the changes that have happened in the last month that I thought would never happen this quickly. Telemedicine. You know, it, it yeah. is, it's become a necessity um, because we can't meet with people, but we want to help them out. So the speed with which telemedicine has started to be integrated. Now, we provided telemedicine for eons, but we didn't charge for it. Now we're starting to figure out we can actually charge for it because it's a convenience in many ways and it's a safety factor in many ways. Something as simple as taking payment outside in the car instead of having a client wait at the front desk or taking payment over the phone you know trying to schedule much more logically with respect to providing care because you have limited access points i mean there are so many different things in terms of scheduling your staff now to meet the clients and then another pain point that has been addressed and and people are, are jumping into now that they hadn't thought they would have to do so quickly is social media and, and using social media to get the word out to their clients. I mean, it is, there's a lot of, a lot of change going on right now. And uh, I, I don't remember where I read this, but I think the part of the brain that re responds to change is the same part of the brain that responds to torture. And so Right now, there's a whole bunch of veterinarians whose brain are trying to figure out whether they're going through change or torture. <laughs> well, and you think about habits and there's so many different, you know, strategies or books. Uh, a great book that I've talked about prior is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And, you know, developing new habits and new routines and, and building those out. It's like it's it's difficult and it takes time to get to the point where that is the new normal. And right now, like you're talking about, it likely is torture when you're trying to do something different and it's not smooth and it doesn't feel easy right away. But when you get to the other side and you start seeing like, oh my gosh, the user experience for people coming into the, the hospital or clinic is so much better. And people actually like this. Hey, they interact with us on social media. This is kind of cool. Or someone tells you like, oh yeah, so-and-so told me or I saw you on social. That's going to be the encouragement that someone needs. And I think the key is, you know, this change not to take a step back when, and it, you know, eventually when all this passes to go back to the way it was before, just because that's the default setting. What do they talk about? It takes 21 to 28 days to change habits as long as you continually do them on a repetitive basis. I think that's what we can hope for. Maybe if this lasts at least 21 days, we can start to change this habit. There's, there's a couple of, uh, I think in the Emith veterinarian, I may have used this quote. If not, I use it when I speak a lot. And and do you know what the difference is between a grave and a rut? No. The depth and how long you're in it. <laughs> I like that. So there's a lot of veterinarians who've been driving to work the same way and they've they've been living in a rut and now they've been forced out of the rut, which may be beneficial to them. It may be reinvigorating. I also like to use the movie Groundhog's Day as a metaphor for the veterinary profession. And every day we get up and do the same thing all day. Exactly. You go home, you wake up and you do it exactly the same way. And now we had this epiphany and we can change and we can move forward. And that's what Bill Murray did when he finally got out of the rut that was Groundhog's Day in the movie. And, and I'm, that's what I'm hoping is that we can see long-term change become a part of the veterinary profession. Yeah. And, and you talked about it, you know, jokingly, but at the same time, I've heard you other times make similar claims that, you know, if it's like a bank or McDonald's and how veterinary medicine is the same as any other business. And I hear that and I'm like, well, I can see the argument and obviously who am I <laughs> to, to say that you're, you're not correct. But don't you think that there is a difference between different businesses or do you still say there is zero difference? It is the same thing. You're providing a service and that's it. I think we provide a service. I think that we are competing for discretionary dollars with Starbucks 
Best Buy, TravelX, um, Travelocity, etc., and that we need to have a business mindset in running the business, and we need to have a increasing value proposition more now than ever. I think there was a period of time when veterinarians could get by without a value proposition because maybe there wasn't as much competition or maybe the internet wasn't such a negative influencer on consumers. And so now we have to we have to do a better job providing a value proposition to our clients through better communication, through better education, through providing more time to the client to make sure their questions are answered, through the leveraging of our team to help us deliver a better client experience. Isaiah, you go to the pediatrician with your son and the nurse practitioner does most of the work. You start to build a relationship with that nurse practitioner. The doctor is the grounded part of the experience, but the vast majority of your experience is spent with the nurse practitioner. At the dentist office, the dentist is the grounded part of the visit, but the hygienist is with whom you spend most of the time. We have had a very doctor-centric business, and we need to become a team-centric business. Honestly, if we want to use the Starbucks discussion as a foundation, people go to Starbucks for the coffee, and the person who delivers it, no matter where that Starbucks is, delivers it with a Starbucks mindset. But they are able to deliver it and represent the company. We need to have our teams doing that as well. And it doesn't always have to be the doctor who is the center, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The doctor needs to be the leader. They need to be the visionary. And they need to think of it from a business standpoint so that you can provide a consistent experience for a client each time, every time, all the time, without fail when they come in. It's hard to argue with that. And I, I completely agree. The, the standard of care has to be the same across the board. I think you've talked about this prior. If there's a multi-doc office and you know somebody does it this way and someone else does it this way. And me, Isaiah, as a consumer walks in and I bring my pet and it's like, okay, well, this is very different than what it was the last time or, hey, we had this issue in the past and now it's being handled differently. Like, well, that seems weird. And yeah, you want that consistency. And I know Starbucks is a great example. They spend millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars just to shorten, you know, five seconds as far as how to make drinks and how consistent the approach is and how to make things come out the same. And um, again, that's a great model to aspire to. But if you could think of one business model or one business that you would think veterinary medicine could go to try to build itself around outside of Starbucks, since we've already talked about that one, whose model or who would you select and why? Well, the, the mission statement I had for my practice was to provide Mayo Clinic level of care in a Nordstrom's-like service environment. So I would love to be able to provide a high quality of care, similar to the Mayo Clinic, in an environment where service is king or queen or whatever metaphor we want to use there. I, I, so that, that may answer your question, but I also am a big advocate of the way Disney does things, and I love the innovation that Apple brought to the, brings to the table. So if we could create a business model today, it would be kind of the service level and vision of Disney with the high-tech aspects of Apple providing Mayo Clinic healthcare in a service environment found at a Nordstrom's or a Neiman Marcus. So I can't pick one business because I think that there are so many good aspects of other businesses out there that could all be brought together to create that ideal veterinary hospital. And I really think that, that the innovation component needs to be a part of of the model for a new for the new veterinary hospital for the 
for the reimagined veterinary hospital of 2020 going forward. Yeah, no, I think there's great examples in in each of those different brands and the the style at which they go go to market and how you feel interacting with those brands. So if I'm a practice owner and I hear that, I'm like, yeah, that sounds great in theory, but I come in and I start changing stuff, people are going to get ticked off because it's not going to be, you know, seamless initially, right? So I think maybe there's that fear of, I don't know exactly how to deliver all the, I, I know what I, I want it to look like at the end, but how do I get there? And the fear of, well, if I just don't change, hopefully things continue to work. Like, do you see that? Do you hear that a lot that, you know, if I, if I do try to implement something and it doesn't work, like then what? So I try to do this cool thing with the tech and I spend the money, but clients don't like it. People don't, they're not embracing it. So what do I do now? Or I'm losing people because of it. Well, I think one of the biggest problems that veterinarians do is they institute change for the sake of change or not change at all. And I'm a huge advocate for engaging your team in the discussion. If you've got a change in mind, get your team buy-in first because they're the front line. They know what your clients are looking for. And sometimes change takes time and it's going to be slow. The other thing is... You know, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Big change will take time. If you're changing for the sake of change, then you don't have a vision. If you have a vision of what your practice will look like at its optimal point, then every day you should be making that 1% change to get you closer to that optimal vision. It could be slow, but slow instead. This is a marathon. I think a lot of veterinarians think it's a sprint and they make immediate changes and and they don't think about the training that's necessary for a sprint versus a marathon. So if you take your practice and look at it as a marathon and make a 1% change every day, by the end of 100 days, you've actually made a 100% change if you think about it. But it doesn't take much, but I think a lot of changes are made without brainstorming without thinking them through and and if you Stephen Covey seven habits start begin with the end in mind then figure out how to get there and I think it's the difference in many ways between jumping in a bathtub with boiling water and jumping in a bathtub and slowly increasing the temperature until you're comfortable stop throwing your staff into a into the boiling water bathtub but work with them to slowly increase the temperature to a level that everybody's comfortable. So, yeah, change, lack of change is a threat to the profession. We're seeing how quickly the profession can change when it has to because of the current COVID-19 situation. And it, it's really like the veterinary profession was thrown into a pot of boiling water like a lobster, and they don't know how to climb out. It would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it, Isaiah, if we had slowly turned up the temperature and made these changes over time, but there was no motivation to do so. So as a result, we were forced to make the changes, and that's when they, that's what we need to look at going forward is how can we make slow, consistent improvements to get to the ultimate outcome that we want? And the most important thing is, do you know what that ultimate outcome is? Absolutely. It all goes back to, you talked about it, you know, the vision, just saying, Hey, we're going to bring in new technology because I went to, you know, some show and someone showed it to me and it looks great and we could afford to do it. And I think this will help versus this is why we're bringing in this technology because this is going to execute on this plan of how we're going to change X, Y, or Z is a big difference in, in how that looks. You've talked about you know, you just brought up threats to, to veterinary medicine. What do you think is the biggest threat out there? You've shared kind of what you don't think it is, which is, I think, a lot of times the standard response for the threats that are out there. But what do you envision is the biggest threat? You want the, the biggest threat to veterinary medicine is the person you look at in the mirror in the morning. Because if you're not up for what's going on around you and you're not ready to change, then you're a threat to your own success and ultimately the success of the profession. So that's a relatively glib, but I really feel honest answer is that we are our own threat. We can, we can change to accommodate a Chewy 
by learning how to deliver online pharmacies through our hospital and through a website that is linked to our business and we could create profit for ourselves using an online pharmacy. We can learn to adapt to lower cost clinics by finding more cost effective delivery models that still center around the client and the patient relationship. We can deal with all sorts of change that's going on around us by just thinking differently. And so honestly, in my opinion, the lack of change, the unwillingness to change is, has, is our greatest threat, not anybody else around it. I think our greatest threat is internal, not external. Very interesting. One of the things I was told early on um, when I made the the claim that I was, you know, hey, working with veterinarians is going to be the the niche in the specific, uh, you know, community I'm going to work with. Everyone's like, well, you know, veterinarians only talk about money. It's taboo. And I get that there's a, a reason for it, maybe within the, the practice, because it can be hard discussions. But why do you think it's a taboo topic, not only in day-to-day operations and how it's a struggle there, but even personally, it seems like there, there's a big challenge for veterinarians to talk about, you know, money just in general. Why do you think the, the topic is kind of taboo or is it? Well, it's becoming less taboo than it was because we are facing the challenges of, of student debt, of flattened salaries. I think we created that taboo. And, and again, I'll go back to the fact that 60, 70 years ago, we provided mixed animal veterinary practices and you went and you got paid in pigs and chicken and listen i got paid in a lithograph for doing a cat a dog neuter so it, it we're not that far into this small business concept of, of veterinary medicine and i think that unlike human health care where insurance kind of buffers the cost of care because you're only paying a copay or you're waiting to see what the insurance will pay we are a direct-to-consumer pay and payment program just like a, a Best Buy or a vacation or whatever the case may be. So as a healthcare provider, we really would love to just be able to provide the best care possible and not have to have the money discussion because in many cases the discussion of money impacts the ability for a client to afford care which is really unfortunate as a veterinarian to be stuck with having to do economic euthanasias when we would really like to be focused on providing the best care possible. I I just did in in an LA Times interview a few months ago that instead of Medicare for all, we need veterinary care for all, where the cost of veterinary care was low cost or free to the consumer and that veterinarians were paid a fair and equitable salary. And the only thing we needed to do was provide the best care possible for pets that came in. So we didn't have to have that money conversation. And I would tell you in my humble opinion for what it's worth and whatever other cliches you wanna go along with that, that all of this stress in the veterinary profession would go away if we could provide the best care possible and not have to worry about the money talk. The money talk is the fear factor in the veterinary profession. I can't explain why. It's a genetic, it's a nature nurture. It's not something we do in veterinary school. It's not something that we're taught in veterinary school. And it is something that's very, very uncomfortable for many of us in the exam room or over the phone or whatever the case may be. Listen, I'm not in practice anymore and I still have a hard time talking about money when I'm trying to sell services as a consultant or a coach. So I don't know what it is from that standpoint, but money talk has become less of a taboo as we've become more of a business. And as we've moved from a a focus on being just a healthcare provider to a part of a service industry, to talk about money has become more and more necessary. And I think we're also having more conversations with our staff using open book management to a degree so that they can understand the cost of doing business. But what we haven't done really well is educate the average pet owner 
on what the cost is to provide veterinary care. And since they see, see real dollars and cents when they do back surgery on their dog, and they see insurance dollars and cents when they do back surgery on themselves, they really haven't quite figured out that veterinary health care is human health care for their animals and that the level of care and service is comparable with the price is one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of what they would pay for their own situation. I think we need to get past the taboo and do a much better job on education and information and knowledge to consumers so that they increase the value of perception of what veterinarians do. Yeah, the the term, the insurance buffer is one that I think sums it up really well where you can then put the blame on, oh man, I wish the insurance company should have covered more. You get upset with with that aspect versus the human health doctor that actually, you know, treated you or you saw or had that conversation with where they can still keep that, you know, relationship much easier versus the person that's now going to turn around and say, oh, this, now you got to pay me. I did a good job, but now you got to pay me. And that's a big difference when you're, you know, a veterinarian and it is hard. And I hear story after story about people doing free work and I'm like, oh, no one else. (laughs) It's very hard for other businesses to be able to do free work. And it's like veterinarians seem to really, you know, just would much rather do that than, than go out and actually have the conversation of what this truly costs. Yep. Absolutely. I think every veterinarian, and, and I've, I've asked this in a group of veterinarians who've done some free clinics for me, if this is how you did your, your practice every day, how much more fun would it be? And it's, it's a smile on their face when they don't have to have the money talk, but they can provide care is it's huge. It, it's like a kid with an ice cream cone when they can just be a veterinarian and not also have to be talking about the cost of care. And I know we talked about rattling cages. What about publishing pricing? And I know that this seems like a wild off the, off the wall type of idea, but if you have published pricing, I know that that's always going to be, well, it depends and different things. But if you could say, this is exactly what we charge for. And instead of having that conversation of, oh, well, does that make sense? A lot of people could then see what that pricing is up front. Do you think that would ever be something that would come into the space or is that never going to happen? It's interesting. I was in New York City many years ago and um, right next door to the Children's Museum was a veterinary hospital. And I just kind of walked in, said I was new to the community and I would like to get a a brochure, flyer, business card. And on the wall behind the reception desk was their suggested fee schedule for exams and vaccinations and basic welfare type stuff. You know, in one of those boards where the letters just kind of got pushed into the black background, the white letters, and half the words were wrong and everything. And and I thought it was just really cool to see that. And I know that there's been a push towards that in human health care. And there may even be some states that have mandated that uh, a fair and reasonable fee schedules are posted from a human health care standpoint. And I know that the insurance industry have helped mandate that to a degree. I really don't want to get into the human health care discussion, insurance discussion. And I do know also, I believe in Canada, and I may be wrong, but I believe Ontario posts a suggested fee schedule or an average fee schedule for the province up there. I, I think that there, the one thing that, that veterinary medicine has going for it is the independence and entrepreneurial component of each practice. And if we take out the corporate-owned practices, every independently-owned hospital does things a little bit differently. And so what we would have to do before we could publish fee schedules is understand that people do things in different ways, but that ultimately we are providing veterinary health care. And not every practice does everything, and some practices do things better. But what I would hate to have by publishing these schedules is people choosing strictly based upon dollars and cents. I really think that there are other values that consumers need to look at when making choices for the veterinarian that they want to go to. And the most important one is their relationship. And the most important part of that relationship is trust. So when you start to put fee schedules out in a public forum, 
I think it can be some become something that violates a trust factor. And that's why I'm just a little bit hesitant to think we're going to integrate that anytime in, in the near or immediate future. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it makes me think of even, you know, my business, you think about like financial planning, I've met people and firms that I have so much respect for, and they charge a lot more than, than other firms, but they are worth every penny for what they do. And there might be a firm that charges a lot less. And it's like, I wouldn't even send, you know, my worst enemy to work with them. So there is a big difference in as far as the value that you get for what you're paying. And I, I agree with a lot of what you said, it just as a consumer, would it be helpful and then help diffuse some of that conversation if you were kind of held accountable because it was published where you couldn't say, well, we'll do it for free. Like, no, actually it's X amount of dollars for that. And, but completely agree with, with what you said and, and yeah, unlikely to get there. Not in my lifetime, I don't think. And uh, I think in most cases, when you start to get fee schedules that are published, those are mandated by government. I think I see those in smog shops in California where you have to go get your car smog checked. So I think uh, if the government starts to get into mandating how much we charge or publishing fees, I, uh, I think we're going to have an uproar. That'll get veterinarians' hackles up, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Any, anytime someone else is going to start dictating how you charge and what you charge, I, uh, I would certainly feel like that would cause a lot of commotion and, and people getting upset. But is there anything, when you think about what has you most excited about veterinary medicine today, is there anything that comes to mind? I'm excited about technology. I'm excited about the progress we're seeing in diagnostics and treatment. I'm really excited about the VBMAs at the veterinary school and the fact that we've got young veterinarians in school thinking about the business of veterinary medicine. I, I'm excited about what the next generation of veterinarians will bring to the table. At the summit in October, they indicated that about 33% of the veterinarians are over the age of 60 or 65, which means that we're going to be transitioning a lot of veterinarians out into retirement. And I'm excited to see what this next generation of millennials and Gen Zs brings to the table that might be change, and it might be a completely different business model that meets their lifestyle and, and their desires and takes on a much more technology-based approach to client care and patient care. And I'm, I'm excited about the people who are willing to be disruptors of the veterinary profession and redirect where we are now to where we need to be going forward. That gets me excited. Absolutely. As we wind down, I, I always ask the same kind of questions of the podcast is around success. How do you personally define that? How do you think about it from a professional standpoint? You can take that any way you want. Well, speaking personally, I think success is having my kids be independent, be strong, and my wife being happy and comfortable and recognizing that, that I made a contribution to their ultimate long-term success. So in, in many ways, my personal success is defined on how I can influence my family members. And from a professional standpoint, and, and I have a vision statement, but it, the, bottom, the last line in the vision statement is I just really want to leave the profession better than it has been and leave it better for the next generation. And so from a success standpoint in a professional fashion, my ultimate goal is to do things that help the profession be stronger, more, even more respected, more vibrant, more fluid going forward so that we continue to, we continue to encourage the best and the brightest to become part of the profession and we continue to do the best that we can to focus on strengthening the human-animal bond, no matter whether the, whether the animal is a fish or an elephant, and whether the person is low-income, high-income, African-American, Hispanic, white, Asian, etc. cetera. Uh, I think the, my ultimate measure of success is how much better is the world as a result of the things I did for it. 
Thank you for sharing. Last thing before you go, again, I appreciate your time. This has been an absolute you know, blast to be able to record and, and get your thoughts and opinions on things. What, uh, what are you working on next? Anything out there that, that is in the pipeline that I'm, I'm working on a cure for coronavirus. <laughs> um, I'm working on right now, just trying to help practices thrive and survive in the face of a double-edged sword that none of us could have ever envisioned would be impacting us in our lifetimes, an infectious disease and an economic challenge. So that's my immediate focus. My long-term focus is to create more and more tools to help practices, to, to help people and practices work on their practice and not just in their practice so that they can enjoy the fruits of hard work, whatever their position is within the practice. So those are the, the big and the short-term and the long-term things that I'm working on. Uh, I'm excited to, to see all, all the different things that you're going to come out with. And again, thanks for being such an advocate to the community. Thank you for your time today. I'll link to all the contact information for you and, and places to find the work that you've had in the past, but also the things you're working on in the future. But ultimately, thanks so much for joining me. I had a great time. Isaiah, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. And um, I hope the listeners take home a couple of different ideas and you know, if I irritated you a little bit, I did my job. So thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah is the founder of ID Financial Planning and Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana. The biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend. Reviews help the show get found. And Apple Podcasts is a platform that is predominantly how people listen to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest review and rating. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and the ability to have your voice heard, please consider joining the private podcast Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll down to the about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can approve you, let you into the group, and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening, and I'll be talking again to you soon.